There are two Hallmark cases that uh, serve as bookends on the project to um, enhance, enhance human uh, constituents, parts of human development. The two legal cases that uh, stand at, at one and the other end of this project, well, the first is rather ominous. Some of you are familiar with it. It's the United States Supreme Court case, Buck versus Bell. And it dealt with the phenomenon of, of negative eugenics, of bettering the human race by eliminating dysgenic genes in the gene pool. Uh, a very learned jurist, Oliver Wendell Holmes, rendered uh, a decision before the Supreme Court. He ended with that uh, oh, much quoted uh, final volley, I guess you'd say. He ruled that the, the uh, young lady in question should be sterilized for eugenic reasons. He said three generations of imbeciles is enough. Of course, Buck versus Bell, although it's been nullified by the reversal of the state statutes that, that gave it legs, gave it legal legs, overturned in part by a Supreme Court case uh, in Skinner, where sterilization for criminal defendants convicted uh, rapists was um, ruled unconstitutional. But in itself, it's never been overturned. There is dicta in the Supreme Court case of Griswold versus Connecticut that says to the effect that um, Justice Goldberg, in his dissenting opinion, said, we wouldn't tolerate uh, the United, uh, a state statute uh, f requiring married couples not imbeciles, married couples, to be sterilized after they had two children, absent a compelling state reason. You know, it's never, that's, that's really not much reported. I was very sensitive. I said, <laughs> absent a compelling state reason. Um, the la uh, former czar of health, uh, John Holdren, spoke to the effect, said words that, yes, even uh, under current uh, United States constitutional precedents, if the population uh, question were to become uh, pressing, we, we could, we could uh, require abortion and of our population. So that's the, that's the, compuls the, the compulsory use of, of um, shall we say, sexual and reproductive technology to enhance uh, what some refer to as mis <laughs> uh, mistakenly called the common good um, is still on the books. At least it's still in the minds of those social planners that we might want to quibble with. The other, the other brand of, of eugenics, positive eugenics, is encouraging people to do the right thing. 
and to be, be smart and to to uh, enhance their 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 children, their offspring, with um, the best that science has to offer. And that brings us to the topic uh, under discussion, which is um, patenting, patenting life, patenting DNA sequences, patenting human DNA sequences. And the landmark case that stands at this end of the bookmarks are uh, molecular association uh, and myrid genetics versus myrid genetics. Um, I would like to be able to read to you a, a bit of the uh, language from that case, but um, that is contained in the PowerPoint, but I'll summarize and I'll, I'll share with you. The case concerns, the case concerns uh, myrogenetics patterns on two gene sequences that um, were isolated by them and um, removed by them and then copied and the, the, the DNA was turned into a template of itself, complementary DNA. So there were two processes in, this, uh, in their patent application. One was for isolating and isolating, so uh, discovering, I should say, discovering and then isolating, <laughs> removing from its natural setting this gene sequence. And the other was for um, putting that into its, um, into a, a, a tag, into a, a usable marker for research purposes, so as to detect breast cancer and ovarian cancer in women. When the case was going up, to the United States Supreme Court, the district court had ruled that both processes, both the discovery and isolation, and then making the complementary DNA, which uh, doesn't um, occur naturally, were not patentable as products of nature. They were uh, not an invention. Granted, there was a discovery much as you would discover a new, a new uh, plant, a new animal, a new river or creek or a stream or some new uh, creature in the Amazon, uh, insect or something of that sort, that doesn't entitle you to a patent on it. Taking it out of its natural setting uh, intact in doesn't, um, doesn't entitle you to a patent. The appellate court reversed on both counts, saying that the, the patents that uh, should be, that they had been granted by the United States Patent Office for discovering and for isolating this gene um, were valid, and that the, the complementary DNA that would uh, remove the introns from the DNA uh, sequence, uh, keeping the ectrons in place, that, too, was a valid uh, patent. The appellate court said that both of those patents were, were good. So when it came up to the United States Supreme Court, the question was, are these products of nature patentable, or are they not products of nature and therefore not patentable? And the United States Supreme Court sort of compromised, shall we say. 
And um, what I would really like to do is have um, my notes presented on my laptop so I could have that. Could, can we do that? Can we just put the PowerPoint, my flash drive, into the computer and, and put it up? And then we can. And so the Supreme Court split. It, it basically said that the, those patents that were found, uh, that were granted for simply uh, discovering and isolating those uh, sequences were not patentable. Indeed, they were products of nature. But the complementary DNA, because it was not found in nature, but was created in the laboratory, the removal of the entrons, those spacers between the genetically coding information, complementary DNA was patentable. So they sort of took a little of each of the decisions. It was actually the position of um, the United States uh, amici brief under the uh, Obama administration. It was nine zip. All nine justices ruled in favor of this, uh, this compromise. Uh, the reason I'm speaking to you on this is because actually I filed an amici brief as well. The Southern Baptist and Professor Brian Skarnacki filed a brief on uh, myrogenetics going forward on. And so um, it's, uh, it's my dubious distinction to be one of the uh, amici in this. We argued that, that the DNA patenting of human genetic material was tantamount, the Baptist's image was, it was tantamount to, to, to a slave auction block where part and parcel of the human person is sold to the highest bidder rather than the, the whole personality. And of course, there's, an issue, there's a problem with that because DNA is an interesting uh, reality. It's a molecule, and that's how myriad genetics looked at it as a, as a molecule. We discovered a new molecule, we rarefied a new molecule, and we deserve a patent on it. But what, this is an interesting molecule, isn't it? It's a molecule that really is a bit of information. And what the patent really covers is the information that they're able to use from this molecule. So it's not as if you're cutting off a, per, a part of a person and saying, that's mine. What you're really getting the patent on is the information in that, in that molecule. So is it, it's, not, it, it's both. And it, to, say that it's not, you know, to say that it's one or the other is a little, um, it only captures half the reality that we're dealing with. Um, what was disturbing in the United States Supreme Court's decision was the use, the word, well, the, the, the idea that since it was isolated in a laboratory and uh, tampered with and changed, even though the function it produces is still similar, even without the introns, it still codes as it should, as DNA would. So it still functions as it does in nature. They haven't changed its functionality. That it's patentable. 
Well, I mean, you know, you're familiar with some of the recent stories coming out, right? We now have synthetic embryos. We have patent. We have patent uh, laboratory animals. We have patent plants. All all of this because they are synthetic, created afresh, anew by human invention. So it, it just to say that. Um, so that's why this this um, development has uh, a relationship with Buck versus Bell. The, the fear isn't that we're going to, oh, uh, there, there, it's not that we're going to revisit negative eugenics anytime soon and require people to step up and change their posterity in their genetic uh, code by gene line therapy or something. But that we, but that by simply giving them the information, making it available to them, the more and more knowledge we present to people about, about their genetic uh, endowment, the more likely it is, and, and the more like, and once we also present to them the ability to change their genetic structure, at least insofar as their children are concerned, that we create an appetite and a market and the ability for people to, shall we say, volunteer to change their posterity. That's a, a positive eugenics. There's no coercion. People will step up to the plate and want to do this. Of course, those with the greater financial resources would be more likely to be able to do so. And then the whole fear of simply, by, even if people simply know their genetic composition and its propensities to good or bad traits, it leads to a certain branding. Just the mere knowledge, just the mere knowledge of your composition, your propensity to athletics, your propensity your, uh, to learn quickly this or that type of activity, intellectual or, or otherwise, um, would, would bring about uh, a classification in society that would be unhealthy. Ultimately, it, it, what we're seeing happening here is the, um, we're looking for, we're, we're looking for the, what it is, the, I think what concerns attorneys and what concerns bioethicists is the human rights project, shall we say, human dignity. What, what carries, what carries the load of human dignity? Is it, what makes us human? Is it your DNA that makes you human? More and more our society has sort of accepted a biological reductionism. In the past, what was the, what was the, the, the carrier of human dignity? Think back. Not that long ago, a hundred years ago, think back a thousand years ago. Why should we be treated differently than fauna and flora, plants and animals? Why, 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 why may we 
eat animals and not cannibalize ourselves. I got to tell you a little story, and it's, this, is, this is in our, our backyard, in Catholic elementary school. It, <laughs> once upon a time, I, I helped with the Sunday school program, and the fourth grade teacher was absent. And I went in, and I said, what are you all learning here today? And they said, we're learning about creation. And I said, okay, that's great. Um, uh, so I had no, just like now, I was having to sort of wing it, you know. <laughs> and so, so I said, uh, uh, well, what are we made of? And somebody said, a uh, little boy, I think, said, um, we have body and hair. <laughs> and uh, I said, body and hair. Uh, well, body and hair, what, why, what, do you, what do you mean? And he said, well, we, we're, we're mammals, and all mammals have hair. I said, oh, okay. Uh, well, uh, you see you have a very uh, good science class. And, um, what, uh, and I said, it's a, it, we have a body and, a, and it's a four-letter word, and it begins with S. And uh, that probably was not such a smart thing to say. <laughs> I, 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 I was winging it, so I didn't have a chance to think that through. But um, they were all either very bad spellers, and, and then the, the answer actually seemed to imply that that might have been the case. And so one little girl said, we have uh, uh, body and, and, and speed. That's not for, what, why speed? And then the same sort of an answer, she said, well, we can outrun any mammal in North America. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, given a long enough lead. <laughs> Even wolves, she said. Really? I said, well, you have a very remarkable science teacher, and, but it's, that's not the right answer. So when I finally, I said, it's what makes us different from animals. And this one little girl said, um, she raised her hand and I said, okay, what is it? And uh, she said, soul. And I said, I said, you just go right up to the board and write that just as big as you can. And, and so she goes up there and she spells S-O-L-E. <laughs> And I go, animals have those, too. <laughs> That's in our backyard. That's in our, our, boot, our little boot camp for children, our catechesis. And I went through the, the, the series. This was years ago, and the catechism series. And it didn't have the word soul in there. It was, it was the um, Sadlier series. It wasn't in there back in the day. And uh, can we? it simply dropped out of our lexicon. Soul. It's an absolute non-starter. The United Nations has said that uh, um, the carrier of human dignity and, and the bearer of human rights is the human genome. And they, they initially thought that there was 100,000 different sequences between us and any other animals, and then it was 30,000. I think it's whittled down to about 300. And the difference between, you know, mice and men, it was a book by that name, right? Mice and men. <laughs> the difference is um, like 30. Are there other attorneys in the room besides Dr. Crazen? Well, then I can say it. And, and they found that with attorneys, it's really only two. No, I can't. <laughs> 
<laughs> but, but uh, and with and with chimpanzees, it's almost ninety-nine percent, and then some change. Is it any wonder that that you know animal rights is continuing to advance? What about with the patenting of chimeras, where we literally take human you know sequences? and inject them into animals and take animal sequences. And a lot of um, uh, scientists and bio, bioethicists are saying that the notion of species um, was convenient, but it's meaningless. That both, both evolution and genetics show that it's fluid. And those that are proposing that suggest that this would be a great kick in the pants to those religious demagogues that run around saying that there's some singularity to human beings. But can, the, but can human DNA really bear the load of human dignity and, and human rights? <clears throat> and patenting genes or gene sequences, or slightly modified gene sequences. You know, cDNA occurs in nature, too. It just doesn't occur very, very often. So it's not to say that it's completely a manufactured thing. But to say that our, our human dignity and human rights rests upon our unique biological structure is... is compounding a problem that we already, you know, have, that, that uh, a problem that discriminates uh, uh, against people for, for reasons of, of disability. Uh, Austin Ruth just mentioned the, the Human Rights Treaty on, dis on Persons with Disabilities, and I had a chance to participate in that. Um, we try to argue that, uh, that persons with disabilities, the children with disabilities identified in utero, should be, well, not targeted for abortion, precisely because of their disability. The whole thrust of the disability conference was that persons with disabilities are, 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 are different but equal, different but equal. And, and we could not get that, that resolution passed. We could not get that resolution passed. The language added that would have precluded persons with disabilities from being targeted, limiting abortion, precluding the use of abortion on, on prenatal children with disabilities. So, you know, uh, Buck versus Bell is, a, is still on the books. We have commentary from justices of the Supreme Court to the effect that compelling state reasons would still justify the use of eugenic measures, negative eugenic measures. And now we're moving forward in the, in, in a, in the vein of positive eugenics, making available to people the ability to enhance their progeny 
with genetic modifications. Your so-called designer babies, your so-called uh, three-parent children. All of these are available and, and, and being perfected even as we speak. 